we began uh, a couple of weeks back on a, a series that we've entitled Understanding the Times. There's a verse of scripture in the Old Testament where it speaks of those that came to David. David was uh, uh, had been anointed as uh, king of Israel, but uh, Saul, who was the king that God had put in place, but had disobeyed and uh, disobeyed God and was working contrary to God's purposes. Saul was still after David and, and trying to kill him, and, and um, he knew that David was the real one. And it says that it talks about uh, how that uh, certain people came to David. Uh, when he was in the wilderness and uh, waging his own war against the enemies of Israel. And it says one of the groups that came was of the tribe of uh, Issachar. And it said they had an understanding of the times and they knew what to do. It's a real interesting phrase that the Bible uses because it indicates that they recognized what God's plan and purpose was in their understanding of the times. In other words, understood what God had promised to do, and therefore they let it affect the way that they lived their lives today. So that's the reason why we're using this uh, this title, Understanding the Times. We have um, spoken a little bit about uh, the rapture. Last uh, Sunday we talked about uh, some of the tribulation. And uh, today we want to go a little bit further and talk about specifically the end of the tribulation and if we can get to it, the millennium and and um, uh, just I'm not sure how far we'll go. I've got more information that I can cover in a day, so um, we'll just take it to where it seems appropriate to uh, to cut it off. So it's important, I think, for us to uh, to recap because not everybody's with us. But even if you were with us, there's so like I said, there's so much information it's hard to keep up with. So let's uh, let's go back and recap a little bit. So we can get ourselves up to the end of the tribulation so we can talk about what God's going to do and what the Bible says. The uh, the end time events, as uh, recorded in the book of Revelation, start with the rapture of the church. The, um, um, it does, the tribulation period does not start with the rapture. The rapture is prior to the tribulation period. It's interesting to me how that uh, John speaks by the Holy Ghost and says that he saw in heaven the beginning of the tribulation. Well... That seems significant in some way. For example, I grew up in a denominational church and we were always taught that if the rapture was on Friday, the tribulation started either that day or the next day. In other words, we had the idea that the rapture is what started the tribulation, but the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that what starts the tribulation period is the war that's described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 where the uh, Russia and the coalition armies, including Iran and, and most of the, uh, um, well, all of the Islamic nations of the Middle East and uh, some of the territories that we know of as Europe, will attack Israel and will be defeated in, in one day, in one 24-hour period. So why does it not say that the rapture starts the tribulation? Why does it say that the war starts the tribulation period? It's possible, and we don't know. I guess we'll know when we get there. But it's possible that there could be some period of time between the rapture and the tribulation period, the start of the tribulation period. It may take certain things of period of time for them to, to align themselves so that uh, things can be in order for the tribulation to start as the Bible speaks of. Nevertheless, the tribulation begins with that war where uh, we just described where the coalition, Russia is the leader, Iran is the right-hand man, and, uh, and the Islamic nations of the Middle East and um, some European territories attack Israel. Now, the Bible says that God defends Israel 
in a, in a miraculous way. It says uh, one of the first things that happens is there's an earthquake. It talks about the earthquake among the mountains. The only mountainous region around Israel is Syria, so it must uh, center around the Syrian uh, nation some way or another. It says that God turns these people against each other. They begin to fight one another. And, uh, and then it says that God rains fire and hail down upon them. And it says that he leaves, uh, Ezekiel 39 verse 2 says that he leaves just the sixth part. That means one-sixth. That's a little less than 17%. Now, it also says that he rains fire down on Russia, which is uh, referred to as Magog, and the isles, the isles of the sea, or the, the isles that dwell confidently is the way the King James, uh, or carelessly, the word uh, careless is also the word confident in King James. But really what it's talking about is it's talking about the coastal nations. So it's saying that God not only punishes the armies that come, comes against Israel, but it says that he pours fire down upon the nations that sent the armies. Now, if there's two ways to interpret that. You can interpret that as he will destroy 83% of the armies and leave just 17% of them. Or you could interpret that the sixth part of everybody that comes against them, which means he destroys 83% of all the, what we know of is the most, the majority of uh, uh, the major Islamic nations of the world. Which way is it? Well, I'm not sure. It seems to indicate that it's the nations and not just the army. That's my personal opinion. I can't say that with surety, though. But if that were the case, then God's wiping out Islam and just pretty much the whole of Islam in one day. Now, there are other Islamic nations. you got Indonesia and Pakistan and India that have large uh, uh, Islamic populations, but they're not the ones stirring up the trouble in the world for the most part. So you've got, you've got the very real possibility, probability in my opinion, that God is dealing with Islam in one day. I mean, wiping them out. Now the Bible says that the, the weapons of the, the armies that come against Israel will burn for seven years. He says, it says that it won't take any wood, it won't take any, any artificial fire, they won't have to set fire to anything. The weapons of the armies will burn for seven years. Furthermore, it says that it will take seven months for Israel to bury all the armies that come against them that are just in their territories. It says that there are going to be uh, whole crews of people that are dedicated for a seven-month period to, um, uh, to bury the dead. So we're talking about some major, major destruction. Now, if that's the case where God is raining fire down on the countries as well, you can well imagine the destruction that would be done in those nations also. The Bible just tells us about what happens in Israel, not about what happens in other places in the world. Can you imagine, if that is the case, the potential, at least, for disease around the world, at least in the Middle East? I mean, how could you bury people that fast? It's going to be a full-time job for seven months for Israel. That's just in Israel. What about other nations? What about these nations that are devastated? The Bible talks about another thing that happens as the uh, tribulation begins is famines. Well... If 83% of the Islamic nations in the Middle East are destroyed, who's going to take care of things? I, I know that the infrastructure there is not necessarily what we're used to, but who's going to take care of the things that are there? What about the economies of those nations? What about the economies of Europe that depends on other nations? What about these oil-producing nations? If, if these things happen today and the world depends on, on the, the oil of the Middle East like it does today, what's going to happen then? You can well understand the world would be in an upheaval. 
that may be the very situation, that may be the scenario, that may be the stage that is set for the Antichrist to come to power. Because the Antichrist turns out to be not too sharp a guy. We get this idea from Hollywood and other stuff that, that the Antichrist is, oh boy, he's something. Nobody can resist him. Folks, the whole book of Revelation is about how the Antichrist tries and fails again and again and again and again and again. And this may be the case where there is a leadership vacuum. One of the scriptures in, uh, uh, one of the verses in Ezekiel 39 talks about the birds of the air, how that they come and they eat the flesh of all those that attack Israel. It, t- it says that God draws them from all the, the four corners of the winds and brings them in to eat the flesh of those that attack Israel. Well, if that same destruction or a similar type of destruction is taking place in other, other nations as well, then you could well understand that you've got leaders. As a matter of fact, one of the, that verse that speaks of that says that they will feast not only on the warriors, but also the kings. Now, I don't know too many kings that go to war anymore. It indicates that the kings will be killed along with the armies. I don't know too many kings or presidents or, or rulers of nations that go to war anymore. It used to be that everybody went out and fought their own battles. Maybe those were the good old days. I'm not sure. But that's certainly not the way things work now. Now a nation goes to war, he sends the army out, and he stays home. Well, then how are the, these animals, how, the, how are these birds going to feast on the kings of these nations? That's another indication to me that the destruction takes place not only in on the battlefield, but also in the countries that sent them. Nevertheless, you've got a lot of, a lot of things that are going to begin to take place. Uh, the, the earthquake in, uh, in Syria is, uh, is the first thing that, uh, that happens. The, uh, uh, in, in God's defense of Israel, you've got the armies fighting against each other and they kill, many of them kill each other. And then you've got these, this fire and hail and, and blood, or these hailstones mixed with fire and blood that come and destroy the armies and possibly the, the nations themselves. Then it tells us that the 144,000, uh, Jewish evangelists rise up. Now these are worldwide. These are not just in Israel. These are worldwide and they go through a, a, a little over three and a half years, a, just about almost four years actually, of, uh, of ministering and, and trying to reach people and, and so forth. Now folks, the, the rapture, um, I don't know how you can overemphasize the importance of the rapture in the, in the, uh, the place of man's history. The Bible talks about people just being caught up. Jesus will appear in the air and we will, we, those of us that have made Jesus the Lord of our lives will be caught up in the air to meet him. This is not done at secret. It's not done at night. Or if it is done at night, it'll be light and everybody will see it. And as a result, how does the world explain that away? I mean, it'll, it'll certainly be reported because only the saved people are going up. So the news media will still be here. So how are they going to explain that away? Washington will still be in operation, clearly. <laughs> but how do you explain the, the, the loss of people? And think about what that would mean. I mean, just from a, if it just happened in America, think about the loss of tax revenue. I'm assuming Christians work. That may be the 53% that are working. I'm not sure. <laughs> what would happen? You've got, you've got people in, in, in very important positions. You've got people in critical positions. And all of a sudden, they're gone. How do you replace something like that overnight? And not only that, how, does, how do those that are glad that we're gone explain it away? 
How do you explain that, well, that wasn't really God. God's not really against us. God's not just for them. You know, he's on our side too. How are you going to explain that? Because the Bible talks about in the first three and a half years of the tribulation that there is a a world religious system that the Bible refers to as the harlot that's set up. Now, what is that? It could be anything. It could be anything from New Age. It could be the World Council of Churches that's still going to be here. Folks, you can't tell me everybody in the World Council of Churches is saved. It's impossible. You can't have that kind of doctrine to be saved. So you got a lot of things that may look religious. And it's interesting that the Bible refers to after the rapture and when the tribulation starts, at least the first half of the tribulation, it says that people turn to religion. It plays an important part. It plays an important role. So much so that the Antichrist has to destroy this religious system or chooses to destroy it at the halfway point of the tribulation. But you got a lot of people that have been in church. you got a lot of people that have heard the message, and all of a sudden now people are gone. The church is gone. Somebody was telling me the other day uh, after, I guess it was after last Sunday morning, there's a, a family in the church that uh, uh, my daughter is real close friends with, and, and so she does a lot of things together with them. And she said, we were getting on the freeway to go somewhere one time, and, uh, and there was nobody on the freeway, either direction. She said it was weird. She said, I thought, did the rapture happen? And she said, then I looked over and I saw Katie. And I said, no, that couldn't have been the case. Katie's still here. <laughs> That's pretty cool. But you get a lot of people that may show up to church and be there by themselves or, or a small group of people. You've got a lot of people, maybe at the, during the tribulation period, maybe between the period, if there is one, between the rapture and the tribulation beginning, where people are going to be questioning what happened and they'll know because they've heard. So there's a lot of opportunities for people to get saved, especially in the first half of the tribulation period. So these 144,000 Jewish evangelists start at the beginning of the tribulation, and they get people saved, and everybody that gets saved under their ministry is called the great multitude. It's both Jewish and Gentile. The Bible identifies that it's both, made up of uh, of both, of all nations and so forth. It says, um, you know, actually, let me... um, let me turn over to, to Romans chapter 1 and read, or Romans chapter 11 rather, and read something to you. I think it's important for us to, to see how some of the things fit that we take for granted and that we read as, um, in the letters given to the church. Romans chapter 11, I'm going to start reading in verse 25 and I'll read down through verse 28. Paul said, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. He's just talked about how Israel turned away from God and the Gentiles came in. So he said, I would not have you to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness or hardness of heart, in part, of uh, talking about of Israel, in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Now, what is he talking about? Well, folks, the fullness of the Gentiles coming into the church is the rapture. He's not talking about just people getting saved. He's talking about until the Gentiles, the, which the, the church uh, of today primarily is, is primarily a Gentile church, is caught up into heaven. That's the fullness of the Gentiles coming in that he's talking about. Let me show you. And he says in verse 26, And so, or then, all Israel shall be saved. I want you to notice that Paul says that all Israel is going to be saved, but he's not talking about all of Israel is going to be saved during the church age. They're going to be saved primarily during the tribulation period. So he said, and all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away the uh, ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. 
Now notice that phrase, when I shall take away their sins. Hadn't Jesus already taken away sin? Well, then he can't be talking about during the church age. Because otherwise, Paul would say they're just, the salvation belongs to them just as much as it does you. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying there's something, there's an event that's going to take place that will bring Israel into the kingdom of God. Verse 28, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. Paul should know this better than anybody because they are the number one cause of trouble in his life and ministry. Religious persecution from the Jews is why Paul was run out of every, almost every town that he went to. So he says, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, meaning God still has a plan for Israel. But as t- touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. So what is the Bible telling us? It's telling us that during the tribulation period, very much so during the 144,000 uh, Jewish evangelism ministry, Jewish ministry of evangelism, these guys are going to reach Israel in a great, great, great way. Not just those Jews that live in Israel, but Jews worldwide. Now, after their, um, after their ministry takes place, like I said, there are certain plagues and troubles and, and so forth. But basically, the first half of the tribulation is pretty smooth sailing. The Antichrist makes an agreement with Israel. He makes a peace treaty with Israel as soon as he comes onto the scene. And this peace treaty portrays him as a man of peace. This war has just, you know, one day war ended when the tribulation started. And now he's going to put everything back together. It sounds almost like hope and change. But nevertheless, it's, uh, well, I, I don't, I'm not saying anything there. I'm not saying Obama's the Antichrist. Well, I don't, I don't think he's the Antichrist. No, I'm just teasing. The Antichrist doesn't come from here. He comes from Europe. So anyway, um, well, that doesn't exactly change anything, does it? Um, <laughs> nevertheless, anyhow, the Antichrist portrays himself as a man of peace. And, uh, and as such, he starts gathering up these nations who very probably have lost their leaders. And so they, they, they fall in with him. They fall in behind the, his plan. The Bible says that temple worship is, instit- is reinstituted during the first half of the tribulation. Now, that tells me that the idea that God has poured out his wrath upon the Islamic nations and not just the armies has to be the case. Because if it's just the armies that are defeated, what about the, the, the conflict that takes place over the Temple Mount? That's the only place there can be a temple, is on the Temple Mount. Why would Islam uh, stop fighting for the Temple Mount? Something has had to happen. Now, I'm going to turn back to Daniel chapter 9, and this will set up uh, both the halfway point of the tribulation as well as some things that we want to say. This is Daniel talking about the 70 weeks. Each week is a seven-year period of time. And um, I'll start in verse 26. It says, And after three score and two weeks, 62 weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. That's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And the people of the prince that shall come. Now, the prince that shall come is talking about the Antichrist. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he, the Antichrist, verse 27, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That's that seven-year period. It's saying the Antichrist will will make a seven-year peace treaty with Israel, but then he'll break it. And in the, uh, he'll make, he'll confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, the halfway point of the tribulation, 
He shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Well, you can't stop the sacrifice from ceasing, or you can't make the sacrifice cease if it hasn't been going on already. So in the first half of the tribulation, somewhere along the way, the temple is rebuilt, and the sacrifices of Israel begin once again. But at the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist stops the sacrifice. He breaks his treaty with Israel. He destroys this world religious system. That's Revelation chapter 17. He declares himself God. This is what uh, uh, these scriptures here in Daniel is what Jesus said. When you see that which was prophesied by Daniel, when he says you, when you, uh, I'm not sure, I don't remember the, the phrase. Well, let me look at it real quick. When he says, you, when you see, where is it, where is it, where is it? Well, I can't find the scripture. Anyway, it talks about when you see that which Daniel prophesied about the Antichrist take place, know that the time is nigh. Well, what Daniel prophesied is at the halfway point where the Antichrist stops the temple sacrifice and he begins to proclaim that he, that he is God. He also institutes the, the beast system. He sets forth the mark of the beast. He and the false prophet are... Um, the false prophet is his uh, spokesman, it seems. And then they set up a wor- the worship of the image of the beast system. Now, it's not him. He's not setting up his own his own image to be worshipped, but he's setting up an image, some kind of idol, to the beast system. He's doing something that commemorates his administration, so to speak, to say this is the greatest thing, this is the, uh, the what was always intended, uh, I am God, and so this is, this is the way things work. As a result, when he destroys the world religious system and, and uh, institutes worship of, of uh, the beast image, which is the system, not him. Both he, the Antichrist, and the system are both called the beast throughout Revelation. When he does that, then automatically he's against all those that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives in that three-and-a-half-year period of tribulation. That great multitude is under great peril now, but God snatches them away and raptures them to heaven. They escape in that manner. Now, he also causes Israel... To be hidden, the remnant of Israel to be hidden. Now turn with me over to uh, Matthew chapter 24. This is what Jesus is speaking of when he talks to his disciples. Oh, it's verse 15. That's the verse I was looking for. I find it when I'm not looking for it. When you therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth let him understand, then let him which is in Judea flee into the mountains. He says, let him not, let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field turn back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray you that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation such as not was in the beginning of the world to this time, nor shall ever be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. What's he talking about? He's talking about the last three and a half years of the tribulation. That's when the plagues and everything really, really starts being poured out. Now, it's um, uh, that's the when God hides the remnant. He hides them in the mountains. And then it says that the two witnesses begin their ministry. Now, we don't know exactly who these two witnesses are. Most uh, scholars... Um, Conclude, guess, whatever word you want to use, that it's Enoch and Elijah. Now, the reason that's 
the best guess we can make is because neither Enoch nor Elijah died in the Old Testament. They were caught up into heaven. So the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. So maybe this is their their opportunity to come back. It doesn't have to be them. It could be somebody else. God could raise up somebody that we don't even know. Who knows? Nevertheless, these two witnesses begin begin their ministry. And they minister throughout the rest of the, the uh, tribulation period, the last half, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Now, at the same time um, that the two witnesses begin their ministry, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 11 that they call plagues down and they utilize plagues at their will. Now, the Bible tells us what those plagues are. It says the plagues that began in the last half of the tribulation is first of all, hail, fire, and blood. That's Revelation chapter 8, verse 7. It says one-third of the oceans become blood. That's Revelation chapter 8 and verse 8. It says there's a star that falls from heaven called wormwood that poisons one-third of all the domestic waters on the earth. Revelation chapter 8, verses 11 and 10 and 11. And then it says that there's a darkness that comes upon one-third of the sun and the moon and the stars in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 12. And it says that these two witnesses use these plagues as they want to. When somebody comes against them, it says fire goes out of their mouth and destroys them. And then it says that they have the opportunity to use these plagues at will. So you've got some real bad stuff going on along with these two witnesses that remember the Antichrist has just proclaimed that he's God. Now he can't control these two guys. And it says that the world is tormented by the two witnesses. Everybody that's still here on the earth is looking at this and seeing it's not the Antichrist and it's not working against God that's the problem. They say it's these two witnesses. It's always the people of God that are the problem. No matter what the problem is, it's always the church. It's always these Christians. It's always Israel. It's always something. It's always something of God, folks. Everything in this world is an attack against God. Because Satan is the God of this world system. So it goes a little bit further. As I said, the remnant of of Israel is hidden in the mountains. And then it says that the angels begin their ministry. That in the, the church age, the Bible says that God has designed the foolishness of preaching to confound the wise of the world. But in the, the tribulation period, it talks about the ministry of angels that are preaching and telling about Jesus. You, now, now, all the time that the world is saying the two witnesses are the problem, you've got angels flying through the air. Angels flying through the air saying, repent, Jesus is coming back. But no, it's the two witnesses that are the problem. My point is simply this. God keeps giving people opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to see what's going on and to change. Now, it also tells us that, um, oh, I left out one of the plagues. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 9. This is one of the plagues that uh, that's the most baffling to me. And I've, I've read a lot of commentaries of what people think about it and, and how it's going to work and all this kind of stuff, and none of them satisfy me. I, I, I just don't know. Revelation chapter 9, let's start in verse 1. It says, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven under the earth. And to him, so it's not a literal star, it's a personality. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of that pit, as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. So you got some kind of major, major worldwide air pollution thing going on here. 
And there came up out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. There's a couple of things we need to see here. First of all, this happens at a point in time where one of the earlier plagues that destroys all the grass has not completed. Because here it says the locusts are commanded not to destroy the grass. If the grass was already destroyed, that would be a worthless commandment or instruction. The second thing it says is that they were commanded not to hurt the 144,000, which means the 144,000 have to still be on the earth. Now, we know this doesn't happen until the midpoint of the tribulation. So the 144,000 are still here after the midpoint of the tribulation. But how long are they here? Let's keep reading. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, talking about the 144,000. Or I'm sorry, it says that they should not touch the men that have the seal of God in their foreheads. That's the 144,000. But it's talking about the rest of the earth. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. So here's a plague that's going to run five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. And in those days shall men seek death. Now, folks, how, how bad would things have to get for you to want to die? Now, I know we say things like that. I know when we feel sick, we can get the flu and we think, oh, we've got to die to get better. But really, seriously, what would make you want to want to die? In those days shall men seek death and shall not find it. Death will be suspended for a five-month period. Nobody will die for five months. That's fascinating to me. And they shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were as it were crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots to many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name is the he- in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue his name is Apollyon. So these have got to be demon locusts. They've got a ruler from the bottomless pit. Now, folks, who's in the bottomless pit? The devil's not there. Who's in the bottomless pit? Is it possible that this is what it's talking about where the angels that left their first estate are reserved into chains under darkness? If it's not them, I don't have an answer. If this is not part of that operation, then who could it be? Because the devil hadn't been sent to the bottomless pit yet. He's taken care of later on down the road. But at that point in time, who's in the bottomless pit? It's not talking about hell. Hell is not the bottomless pit. So who's it talking about? By the way, the devil doesn't reside in hell. I hear some people saying, devil, I cast you back into hell. He doesn't live there. He lives here. He doesn't want to live there. He's not looking forward to the time where he has to go there. So what about, what's this bottomless pit? Folks, I don't have an answer. I don't, and nobody else's answer that I've ever heard or read satisfies me either. I don't know what this is. I have one thing to say about this. Thank God I'm in heaven when this takes place. That's enough reason to get saved right there. You know? Well, this is part of what the, the two witnesses 
have under their control too, apparently, because it says they use the plagues at their own will. Then it tells us that the 144,000 are raptured. We find them back in heaven in Revelation chapter, the last part of Revelation uh, chapter 14. It tells us, therefore, that they are on the earth, the 144,000 are on the earth for three and a half years plus five months. We see that from the locusts and the operation, the instruction given to the locusts. So that's almost five years, or almost four years, excuse me. That's three years and 11 months that the 144,000 are on the earth doing their ministry. During that time, they're getting everybody saved that they can possibly get. They must be getting people saved during this five-month period or else they'd have been raptured with with the great multitude at the halfway point. Why leave them if they're not working? Makes sense, doesn't it? So they must still be trying to get people saved, but it doesn't say anything about anybody else being raptured, just 144,000. We don't know if that's just incomplete information. God didn't see fit to tell us that others were raptured with them or if they're still here on the earth. At that point, the Bible tells us about the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is Revelation chapter 19. So it's only after the 144,000, well, let's, let's go through them. The church is raptured. Then tribulation begins. The first half of the tribulation, the 144,000 do their work. Then the, at the halfway point of the tribulation, three and a half year mark of the tribulation period, then the great multitude is raptured. Then five months later, the 144,000 are raptured. And when all three groups are in heaven, it talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 7 of Revelation 19. Uh, well, verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. The word righteousness means righteous acts. It doesn't talk, it's not talking about a nature. It's not talking about a condition. It's talking about righteous acts. It's talking about works. Now, can I ask you a question? Are you made righteous by your works or by the blood of Jesus? Well, then this can't be talking about the church. Jesus doesn't get married to the church. How can you get any closer to Jesus than being in him anyway? See, going to heaven doesn't change the fact that you are in Christ now. It's not that we're in Christ yet, but that's not a real being in Christ. But when we get to heaven, then he marries us. That's not how it works. The church isn't the bride. The church isn't the wife. We are invited to and participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb, but we're not the bride. Keep that in mind. We'll cover that in time. Verse 9, And he said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now let me ask you a question. If we're the wife, why would we be blessed to be called to the marriage supper? I mean, we belong there, don't we? Again, he's not talking about the church. Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, these are the true sayings of God. Now, immediately following that, now we don't know how long that lasts. That could last up until the last part of the tribulation period. But the next thing that we see is Jesus coming back. Now, there's something that happens in between then. And that is primarily in Revelation chapter 16. It talks about the last month of the tribulation period and the plagues that take place right at the end of tribulation. In the last month of tribulation, it speaks of boils on all those that have a mark, a real painful experience. The Bible calls it a noisome and grievous. It means evil and hurtful thing. 
It talks about the oceans now becoming totally blood. Now, for 30 days, pretty much all the water on the earth turns to blood. The oceans turn to blood. Then the domestic waters, the rivers, and the fountains totally turn to blood. Now, that may not mean worldwide, but it certainly means that part of the world. It says the heat of the sun is increased. This is Revelation 16, verses 8 and 9, that scorches people. Now, we don't know if something happens to the sun itself or something happens to the atmosphere where the rays of the sun affect people, but it's you don't want to go outside. Then total darkness comes over the Antichrist kingdom. This is Revelation chapter 16 and verse 10. This is, this is something that's important for you to see. Because in, um, well, let me finish here and then we'll look back at something else. Total darkness covers the Antichrist kingdom. It doesn't say it covers the world. It says it covers the Antichrist kingdom. All the territories of the Antichrist. Now, folks, think about this. If the Antichrist is operating in Europe in the Middle East primarily, and he does, then that means other parts of the world are going to be able to see what's going on there, see what's happening under his leadership, and recognize things aren't going real well there. These plagues that are taking place are not necessarily affecting the whole world. They may be to some degree, maybe to varying degrees, depending on the different plagues, but we don't know for sure if it's happening everywhere. We do know the one-third of the world's water supply turns to blood, as far as the oceans are concerned along with the domestic water supply. So certainly that's going to affect everybody, but it's going to have the greatest impact there. Now, the reason for that is just like God showed a difference between the twelve, the ten plagues in Egypt on the Egyptians and, and the, they didn't affect, after the first two, they didn't affect Israel. He's going to show the difference between those that are working against him, those that are making war against him, the guy that's saying he's God and that he's in control of everything and can't control anything. I mean, the fact that he has to set up the mark of the beast says he can't even control commerce in his part of the world. He's trying to gain control because up to this point, it's just a joke. He's saying all this stuff and none of it's reality. They may have the news media behind him and propping him up and saying, yeah, here's what's really happening and stuff like that. But everybody can see. I mean, if you're God and you can't control the weather, what kind of God are you? So it says the total darkness comes over the Antichrist kingdom. Then it says the Euphrates River is dried up. Another plague takes place and the Euphrates River is dried up. That's important because of this. The Bible speaks of a 200 million man army that comes from the east. That can only be China. China is the only possibility for that. And it's attempt, China's attempt to get their 200 million man army to the place where God says he's going to finally deal with everything, and that's in the Valley of Megiddo at the Battle of Armageddon. The only way for them to get there is to cross over what the Euphrates River makes impossible. So except that the river dries up, they can't get to where they need to be. So that's one of the things that happens right at the end. Then finally, thunders, lightnings, and a great earthquake. Uh, This is in Revelation chapter 16. Let me read this to you. Verse 18, it says, And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as it was, as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nation fell, and great Babylon came into remembrance before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. That's 130 pounds. 130 pound hailstones. Now, folks, that size, I'm not a scientist, but I would think that qualifies as meteors. 
But it says they're hailstones, 130 pounds. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of that hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Yeah, it's all God's fault. Now, Isaiah chapter, um, what is it? Isaiah 13, verse 13 says that the move, the earth was moved. This earthquake was so great that the earth was moved out of its place. Now, what does that mean? Some have, have speculated that means that the earth, which is on a tilted axis, is set back upright. We don't know, but we know that places disappear. We know that cities disappear. We know that, uh, that the city of Jerusalem disappears or, or is broken into three parts. Excuse me, it doesn't disappear. It's broken into three parts. This is an earthquake like there has never been. This is from the very foundation, the very center of the earth. Now, that being the case, then it tells us about the final day of tribulation. There are five things that happen on the final day of tribulation. This is back in Revelation chapter 19. This is when Jesus comes back to the earth. And I saw heaven opened and beheld a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness does he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Any doubt who this is? It's got to be Jesus. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, this is where Jesus comes back. This is called the great and terrible day of the Lord. This is not what the Bible refers to when it's talking about the rapture. And here's where people get mixed up. A lot of times people think that when it talks about the great and terrible day of the Lord, that's got to be the same thing of the rapture. And that's why some people think that we're only going to be raptured at the end of the tribulation. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that Jesus comes back for the church. That's a great time. That's a wonderful time. That's something that we look forward to. But when he comes back on the great and terrible day of the Lord, the Bible says that the nations will mourn. Hold your finger here. We'll come back to Revelation 19, but turn with me to Matthew 24 again. Jesus has just finished. We just finished reading a little bit ago that except those days be short and nobody would survive. He goes further and talks about the deception. There shall arise false Christ, false prophets, and show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. That's part of what it says the Antichrist does right at the end of the tribulation, that he deceives people with signs and wonders. And notice it says in, um, uh, well, verse 25, Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he, Christ, is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret places. Believe it not. If they tell you that he's somewhere, don't go to find him. That's not the way Jesus is coming back. Verse 27. For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines even unto the west, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Now notice verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Now, that's what Jesus is talking about that Revelation explains, where darkness covers the Antichrist kingdom. Remember in Joel's prophecy, it talks about the sun going black and the moon turning to blood. That's what this is talking about. It's talking about the end of the tribulation period. Notice it says, then, verse 30, then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And when Jesus comes back for the church, I don't know about you, but I'm going to be kind of glad about that. And the earth is going to be glad. The people that are left are going to be glad because now we're gone. 
They can finally do what they want to do, and the Antichrist can do his thing and all that kind of stuff. We, the church, are the only thing keeping the Antichrist from being revealed now, the Bible says. So the, the rapture is a joyous time for everybody, for different reasons, for different people, but it's a joyous time, but not at the end. Not when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven, not earth, but one end of heaven unto the other. Now, folks, if he's talking about the elect meaning the church, which that's the only thing the elect ever means, how is he going to gather the elect from heaven if we're not already in heaven? Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and puts forth his leaves, you know the summer is nigh. So likewise, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. What's he saying? He's saying the last signs that you're going to get is going to be when the sun goes dark. And that's when Jesus comes back. Now, when Jesus comes back on the great and terrible day of the Lord, what happens? Well, remember we talked about the two witnesses. These guys minister for three and a half years, and man, they are the super thorn. They are a mega thorn in the side of the Antichrist. Because he tries to destroy them, and they just breathe fire out of their mouth and and kill the people that he sends after them. They can't... Uh, he can't do anything against them. He says one thing, they say another, and their way proves out to be right. This guy is shown to be a total, an absolute failure for three and a half years. But three and a half days before um, the end of the tribulation period, he kills these guys. And everybody is so happy about it that they won't bury him for three and a half years. They put him on TV. They lay him, lay him, leave them laid out in the street. Remember the old westerns where they showed the gunfighter, or the uh, the outlaws in the coffins and stuff like that? Well, I guess it's something like that. They leave them out in public for three and a half days. But then the Bible says the Spirit of God comes back in them and they come back to life. I just love how God does this. So these guys are resurrected and then they're caught up into heaven. They're caught up into the air and they meet Jesus as he comes down. They go up and come immediately back down with Jesus to the earth. And then the Bible tells us about the final battle. Back to Revelation chapter 19. Verse 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that he, that with it he should smite the nations and he should rule them with a rod of iron. He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the fowls that come, that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together under the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men. This is almost a, a, a restatement of the way that it says in Exodus 39 about the war that starts the tribulation. You shall eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him 
which with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant which were slain with the sword of them which sat upon the horse whose sword proceeded out of his mouth and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Now I'm going to read from Zechariah chapter 14. Because this talks about the end time. It talks about the war and then it also talks a little bit about the millennium period. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 3. It says, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Remember we read in in, uh, chapter 16, verse 18, about the great earthquake, and it divided uh, the great city in three parts. This is, Zechariah is going to give us some more detail about what happens when Jesus comes back. When Jesus comes back in glory, the two witnesses are caught up to meet him in the air. They come back to the earth. Jesus sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, and that's when the great earthquake takes place that causes the earth to be moved out of her place. Let me show it to you. Zechariah 14, verse 3, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Verse 4, And his feet shall stand upon that day. Stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, on the Mount of Olives, shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto us all. Yea, you shall flee like as you fled uh, from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. Notice the Old Testament said we're coming back too. We come back with him. We don't meet him in the air. We did that at the rapture seven years earlier. Now we come back with him. Folks, do you realize that you're going to be fighting in this battle? Otherwise, there's no reason for you to come back. If Jesus is coming back to fight in the battle of Armageddon, if you're not there to fight, what are you doing there? Why wouldn't he leave you in heaven and say, now, boys, watch this. See the point? And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. In other words, the earth went dark, but now everything is lighted by Jesus himself. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And in that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. This is talking about the millennium, the thousand-year reign. And all the land shall be turned in as, as a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. And it shall be lifted up and inhabited in their place from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate and from the tower of Hanel, or something, under the king's wine press, and the men shall dwell in it, there shall be no more destruction, utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Now he's going to tell you how the war is fought. Verse twelve. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord shall smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away as they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. Now we've seen this in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Where do you think they got that? This is where they got that idea for that scene. This is exactly what God does to destroy the people that come against him. Now, who is this? This is the Antichrist. This is the false prophet. This is all of their armies, the nations that they control, and the armies that they put together over the last seven years. Plus, it's the 200 million man army from the east that comes over the river, the dry riverbed that used to be the Euphrates River. They're all gathered together in that one valley of Megiddo. 
in Israel and they're destroyed. The Bible says that there is such destruction that the, 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 the blood rises up, reaches the level of the horse's bridles. Where does that come from? Because everybody's melting away. Now, folks, I want you to understand how God fights. That's why he's able to take you and me with him. Now, when I said you're going to be fighting in this battle, some of you are probably thinking, man, I better start taking fencing lessons or work on my ninja skills or something like that. No, no, no. That's not how it works. God fights with the words of his mouth. and It destroys his enemies. Verse 13, and it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them. And they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. When God shows up and starts doing this, everybody starts fighting each other. And Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. And so shall be the plague of the horse, of the mule, of the camel, and of the ass, and of all the beasts shall, that shall be in these tents as in this plague. Back to Revelation. So we see the rapture of the two witnesses on the final day. We see Jesus return with the church. We see the battle of Armageddon. We see the Antichrist and the false prophet thrown in the lake of fire. And then in chapter 20 in verse 1, it says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan. Notice it gives Satan four names. Dragon, serpent, the devil, and Satan. And bound him a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. (laughs) I like that part. And shut him up. And set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given to them. That's the church. We're kings and priests unto God. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. These are the martyrs and for the word of God in which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So you're going to have tribulation martyrs that are going to reign too with the church. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So Jesus lives and operates here on the earth. And the Bible says he rules with a rod of iron. Now, the Bible also says that, um, uh, where, where is that going to be? Um, the Bible talks about nations on the earth that, um, and this is Zechariah's prophecy. I won't go back there. I know I'm out of time. But Zechariah continues and talks about the, the penalty for those that don't obey during that thousand-year reign. It says that everybody's commanded to come to Jerusalem to worship once a year. Now, there are nations of the earth that, that have not been greatly affected by the plagues and by all the, the stuff that happened in Europe and the Middle East. That may be America, too. There, there's a lot of the rest of the world that's not uh, uh, so greatly affected by the tribulation events. I mean, everybody's affected some. You can't live here and not be affected, but you understand what I mean, I hope. And as a result, it says that those people are going to be ruled over and reigned for a thousand years. Now, what happens in those thousand years? Well, the Bible says that if anybody dies at a hundred years old, they're going to be considered a baby. They'll lament, how could somebody die so young? The population will continue to increase. The earth will replenish itself. Everything will come back to normal over those thousand years. And then 
the devil is released once again. Now, now think, think this through for a second. Next week, I, I really, if I can finish today, I'd like to wrap up next week and, and say some things about what does all this mean. So give me just another couple of minutes, please. If you're on the earth and you don't believe in Jesus, but you've seen all these things, either firsthand or you've seen the reports of all these things that happen, and none of this is done in secret, folks. God does it to show everybody. It's pretty easy to see. You see the devil cast into the bottomless pit. It's pretty easy to see who's God and who's the devil. I mean, we're not talking about unseen things. We're not talking about having to believe with the eye of faith. We're talking about these things being out in the open. You've seen the sun go dark. You've seen the, the stars and the moon and everything change. You've seen the, the upheaval in nature. You've seen all these things that have taken place. You've heard the reports, if you didn't witness it with your own eyes, about the two witnesses and you saw them say things and it happens. You saw the plagues, them controlling the place. You've seen all of these things. What are you going to do for a thousand years when Jesus is ruling? My natural thinking, and maybe this, maybe I think this way because of the life of God inside of me, because not everybody does this. But my thinking on this is people are going to look around and say, man, we've never had this so good. There's no war. There's no strife. There's no racial division. There's no gender equality. Man, this Jesus guy being in charge, this is really cool. But that's not what people do. That's not what people do at all. They want to get out from under Jesus' rule. And that's the reason that he provides them the opportunity. We'll pick up in verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Why? Because not everybody on the earth wants to be under God's control. Now, that's fascinating to me. How does somebody with their eyes wide open, we're not talking about fairy tales. We're not talking about believing something you can't see. We're talking about what you're experiencing day after day for a thousand years. How does somebody not want to have that continue? But Satan is loosed at the end of the thousand years. And he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. And the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Why? Because a thousand years, everybody's been remultiplying and repopulating the earth. And they went up onto the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Please notice how God fights. This is not an arm wrestling match between God and the devil. This is not God struggling to see if he can overcome. It wasn't in the beginning when he cast him out of heaven. It's not now, and it won't be at the end. And i got to tell you something, folks. God keeps setting the devil up and letting him go. I think he likes whipping his butt. And the devil that deceived them, verse 10, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Here's the final thing we'll go over this morning. Verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before the Lord. I love that phrase. I saw the dead, small and great. You might be somebody here on the earth, but you're going to be dead when you stand before the, God, before the Lord. That's all there is. That's the only designation there is, and that's the dead. Now, these are not the righteous dead. These are the wicked dead. 
We read a verse of Scripture in verse 5. It says this is the first resurrection. The first resurrection are all those saints. You remember the dead in Christ rise first when Jesus comes back for the church. Then the, the tribulation martyrs are, are uh, restored and they reign during the millennium. So you see those that were righteous dead that have already been raised. These now are only the wicked dead. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in their books according to their works. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. There's a difference between the rewards of the church and the great white throne judgment. The Bible says, Jesus said, talking to the church, talking to his believers, his followers, he said that the things that we do here on the earth that are not, that don't have any value, eternal value shall burn up. They'll be tried in the fire. The things that are eternal shall be tried like gold and silver and precious stones. And those things that are just natural, those things that we did that did not have any eternal value shall burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. You remember that? That has nothing to do with the great white throne judgment. There is no judgment for the church. Ever. Period. This is not the church. And at that great white throne judgment, this is when the wicked shall have to answer for why they didn't make Jesus the Lord of their lives. And that's why they're examined according to their works. Because you're going to have a lot of people that are going to stand there and claim that they should have a right to some future. Why? Well, because I was a good person. So they're judged according to their works. But notice the book of life is opened. There's nobody in this group at the great white throne judgment that's name's going to be in the book of life. That book of life was only for the church. That book of life is something where every person's name was originally put. You can't be born into the earth without having your name written in the Lamb's book of life. But when you reject Jesus, your name is blotted out. That's why the Bible tells us that when the church stands before us, before the Lord, that's where he looks to see if the names were blotted out. But for the great white throne judgment, it's for the wicked to show them the book of life does not have your name. Why? Because it was blotted out through your choice, through your action, and nobody's works are going to be able to stand up in the face of righteousness. So they're going to be judged by themselves, not by God. And the sea gave up the dead, verse 13, which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead, which were in them. So all those that have been in hell for whatever period of time in the past, now they're raised up they face the same white throne judgment. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. They were cast into the lake of fire. Let me go to chapter 21, just one, one verse here. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Turn with me to Second Peter chapter 3. I'll close with this verse. This is what Peter was referring to when he wrote to the church. Second Peter chapter three. Uh, verse seven. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, 
by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. What's that talking about? That's talking about the great white throne judgment. The heavens and the earth are reserved until the great white throne judgment. That's what it's saying. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. But the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord, this is the day where Jesus comes back with us. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. He's talking, it combines two different things. It's saying this is what it's like when Jesus comes back with the church to exact punishment upon the earth, and this is what it's like when the heavens and the earth melt and the new heavens and the earth are established. Now, why should that matter to us? Notice what he concludes. Verse 11, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens shall be on being on fire shall be dissolved, and the earth's elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. What's he saying? Seeing that these things are going to pass away. Folks, everything's going to melt. I want you to realize something. This is not some fairy tale. This is not the Easter Bunny. You're going to witness this. You're going to see this happen. We're talking about a a real day. We're talking about a real occurrence. We're not talking about some pie-in-the-sky belief. We're saying that this is what God said will be. Now, if God doesn't do exactly what he said, then we might as well throw the book away because he's a liar. And if he is a liar, that means nothing is, is, is worthy of our trust. We might as well eat and drink and be merry because we're going to die along the way. But these things are really going to happen. Since that's the case, since we know that this is what God said is going to happen, how ought we to live now? Should we pursue things that are going to burn up? Should we make the focus of our lives that which is going to be done away with and nobody will even remember? Or should we live for eternity? Should we recognize that our time here has purpose? Because these events are coming. And except somebody hears about Jesus and makes him the Lord of their lives, they won't escape him. Now we'll talk about the new heavens and the new earth next time. And we'll wrap up some things, a lot of details that I wasn't able to get to. I'm sorry, I knew I threw, I know I threw a lot of information at you. But the important thing is this. If these things are true and these things are what the Bible says is going to happen, I gave you my idea on a couple of things. I gave you some speculation on a couple of things. But most of these things are just right right out of, here's what the Bible says is going to happen. If these things are true, how should we live? How should we live? I said earlier in the service, the more I, I I don't study on the end time stuff very much. I like it when I do, but I've got to be careful. Because if I start looking at the end time stuff, then I forget about, wait a minute, what's the job now? What are, what's the purpose? You know, I'll start looking for Jesus to come back by five o'clock. <laughs> if I focus too much on this stuff, you know. But it does make me more aware of people that don't know. I'll study these things and go to the grocery store and look around and say, do you have any clue? You know, say to myself, I don't say it out loud. I say to myself, do you have any clue? 
I wonder if they know what's coming. I wonder what they would do if they did know what was coming. That's why Jesus left us here, folks. That's the only reason Jesus didn't take us to heaven when we got saved. The only reason. Because he cares about other people. And he wants to care about other people through you and me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what it reveals to us. Thank you that you have not appointed us under wrath. But you've made a way for us to escape. Lord, I pray that it would be true for us just what Jesus said. That we would be a people that watch and pray. That we may be counted worthy to escape all these things. We know that we will escape, Father. We know that your word is true and that when Jesus comes, we shall go and meet him in the air. But, oh, Father, let it be that we take every person that will receive with us. Let it be so, Father, that we live our lives in such a manner that we're always open and alert to who doesn't know, to those that have never heard. Folks, let us be witnesses. Not just witness, but let us be witnesses in our lives so that we take people with us to meet Jesus in the air. Father, these truths make me feel so small. They make my plans seem so insignificant. Help me, Father. Help us to see things through your eyes. To live according to your plans and not our own. To pursue things that are eternal and not things that will dissolve. What a tragedy for us to get to heaven and stand before you and to realize that we focus our attention on things that will not last. Don't let that be the case for us, Father. Holy Spirit, you prompt us. You help us. You remind us. Keep us on target. Keep us pursuing a worthy goal. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that prayer, say amen. Amen.